Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 in your Bibles. We've been in the book of Psalms for some time, and we keep saying that the Psalms are about praise. Even where certain Psalms acknowledge or lament a lack of praise, they're still really about praise because praise is the goal. Praise is the, pro- the lack of praise is the problem that's being addressed. Some psalms are praise. Some psalms invite us to praise. But these psalms also tell us why we should praise. They give us reasons for praising him. The psalms provide us the material, we could say, of praise. It's, it's the stuff of praise in these praise psalms. The meat and potatoes of praise is shown to us in these many praise psalms. For instance, they'll say, Praise him for what he did in that great story of the Exodus, that second book of our Bibles. If you've never read that before, read it and see God's power, his greatness, his deliverance, his mercy, his patience, also his judgment. Many Psalms point back to the Exodus and marvel at what God did there. Many Psalms praise God for his attributes, that he's holy or majestic, that he's glorious, that he's powerful, that he's eternal. Many psalms praise God for his promises to David, for instance. And especially the promises to David that will one day be inherited by his son, Jesus, the son of David, the eternal Messiah and God himself. Some psalms praise God for his mercy and for his grace. And some psalms praise God for his creation. There are several psalms that praise God for his creation, and each one does a specific thing or gives us a specific focus. Psalm 8, for instance, focuses on man, on humanity, on people. They're to bear his image, and they're to give dominion to the earth. They're to do God's work, in a sense, as his emissaries on the earth. Psalm 19 focuses on the stars and the sky. God's glory is shown to us in The wonder of the sky and the beauty of the stars. Psalm 148 does the same thing. Psalm 33 focuses on the very first of God's creative acts. When God spoke and then there it was. It just was. It it existed because he spoke it into an existence. Psalm 29 and 97 which we saw last week. Focus on what we might call upheavals in creation, natural disasters, calamities, tornadoes, earthquakes. But Psalm 104 focuses on God's intimate and intricate ongoing care in his creation, and especially in the animal kingdom. It's almost like Psalm 104 is the National Geographic psalm. So last week we talked about Psalm 97 and how God shows himself and uses and is in the dark side of creation. Upheavals, volcanoes, tsunamis. This week we go to the other end of the spectrum to see his sweetness and his care and his nearness in Psalm 104. It's a long psalm, so let me read a section in the middle here to give us a taste of what this is about. Right in the middle, it shows us this thing of God's intimate and intricate care for his creation. Let's read verses 10 to 24. It says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. 
They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how majestic are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Well, many have noted that Psalm 104 seems to be following the pattern of Genesis 1. You know that God created certain things on certain days in Genesis 1. And generally, it seems as though the writer of Psalm 104 has that in mind as he works through. Roughly so, not perfectly so. But now he's looking at a world that has everything in it all together at once, unlike the Genesis 1 account. So it follows that rough order. But for instance... The waters are there while the animals are there in Psalm 104, unlike the Genesis account. So it follows the pattern of Genesis 1, roughly but not perfectly. It's showing the harmony of God's created order. It's showing the interrelationship of God's creatures and the stuff of creation. But that's not where this psalm starts. Turn back to Psalm 104 and look at verse 1. Let's read the first four verses here. They say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. That's the first section of this psalm. How should we describe it? I think we can summarize it by saying God dwells on high. You see on the back of your bulletin there's some sermon notes there. You see the first, God dwells on high. Now, you have to understand a couple of basic theological principles in order to grasp verses 1 through 4 and really how they're different than the other section I read in the middle of Psalm 104. You see, on the one hand, Scripture teaches us that God is near, that he's close, that he's discernible, that he's knowable, that he cares, he hears. But scripture also teaches us that God is distant, that he is not like you or me. He is other. He's mysterious. 
And in some ways, he's hidden. The majority of the psalm speaks of his nearness and his care. But verses 1 through 4 stress something else, that God is distant, that he's other, that he's mysterious, that he is on high. And hence, creation is like his garment, it says. It's like his clothes. We could even say creation is like his cloak. It's another way of translating verse 1. He is clothed with splendor in majesty. He covers himself with light as with a garment or cloak in verse 2. Verse 3 says he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. But that isn't referring to waters below like the sea. It's referring to waters above in the clouds. We usually don't refer to clouds as water, but you know that's what's up there, right? He is... In the clouds. Oh, not literally. Of course God doesn't live in the clouds. He doesn't, as verse 3 says, literally ride on the clouds like they're his chariots. But even if he doesn't live in the clouds, we have to say neither does he live down the street. He doesn't live in your pocket. He doesn't live in churches. He's not in houses made with hands, like Paul says in Acts 17. He's unseen. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he's the immortal, invisible God. As he says in the same book, God dwells in unapproachable light, and no one has ever seen him nor can see him. So the clouds and the light are like a shield, a cloak for his glory. On the one hand, they show forth his glory, it declares his glory. On the other hand, it hides us from his fullest glory. In Job 37, Elihu said to Job, No one looks on the light when it's bright in the skies. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. He's the Almighty. We cannot find him. You see, clouds, separate distance. He's not... Altogether knowable, he's hidden in a sense. Hence, no surprise that his messengers in Psalm 104, verse 4, his angels are fiery flames. And no surprise that this God can speak worlds into existence. That's where the psalm goes from here. Secondly, in your notes, he created the earth. He dwells on high. Secondly, he created the earth in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, look at that. He says that he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. A fixed axis. It's tilted, which is why we have seasons. Verse 6 says he covered the earth with the deep as a garment. This is referring to the first parts of creation, day one, day two, when water covered the whole world, and then eventually God separated the land and the sea. How? Well, look at verse 7 of Psalm 104. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountain rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. In fact, verse 9, you set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. 
In Job 38, God said to Job that he prescribed limits for the water. That God says to the water, thus far you shall come and no farther. God says that the waves, yes, are powerful, but they're limited. A wave goes up on the beach only so far. Oh, I know it changes throughout the day. There are times when there's a tsunami and it really changes. It goes way into the city. But wherever it stops, it's where God says it stops. It's the same word here for obeying. The words obey, sorry, the waves obey him. The waves say, okay, that far. You said it. That's as far as we go. They obey exactly where God wants them to go, where to stay. Praise God, he's given us land. Praise God, this isn't a water world. He separated the land and the sea. He keeps us dry. He created the earth. But then this psalm moves on to talk about his care. That's the section we read at the beginning. Thirdly, he cares for his creation. He cares for it. And he cares for it with a few different things. He cares for his creation with water. In verses 10 to 13, he makes springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. And hence, they give drink to every beast of the field. Even wild donkeys quench their thirst there. God brings the water to them. I mean, in a sense, they go down to the brook. They go down to the stream. In another sense... It comes from a snow-capped mountain, or it comes from a, a sea someplace else, and it goes a path and leads right to certain animals that are there, and they drink. Even wild donkeys. What, what good is a wild donkey? I mean, what good is a donkey except you don't have an engine and need to plow something, I guess? Or, you know, you, you have to do a tour in the Grand Canyon, and they won't let you use a dirt bike. I guess then the donkey's okay, but... But a wild donkey? What's the point? It's God's wild donkey. He drinks. He gives it drink. Quenches its thirst. He gives them drink and the earth is satisfied. It's satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verse 13. He takes care of his world. And he takes care of the creatures in it. So verse 14 and 15 talk about his care for creation with food. He gives grass to grow for the livestock in verse 14. Grass just grows. Oh, not here in Albuquerque. But in other parts of the world, I'm told, grass just grows. And it's all his doing. It's all his doing. It's all his care. Man, too, has his provision given to him from the Lord. Notice verse 14, it says that man has to cultivate the plants unlike the cows. The cows just stand there. Grass just grows. They eat it up, and that's it. Their only part is refertilization. But man is different. He's made in God's image, and so he bears that image out in working the land. And yet even that, it's a gift from the Lord, isn't it? The land, the crops, the fruit, and it... It's process of bearing fruit. It's from God. Well, there's more about God's provision of food in verses 21 and 27 and 28. But first, the psalm moves on to talk about God's care for his creation with giving them homes. 
verses 16 to 18. It says in verse 16, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. He makes trees, he takes care of trees, verse 17, because in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. Even wild goats have the home of high mountains. That's what high mountains are for. Oh, I know they're for other things too. And in some ways they're just part of God's superfluous, extravagant oddities. I mean, creation is just weird. What are mountains for? You say, well, they're there because of the earth's crust. And, you know, years ago it went like this and went up and it made a mountain. But why, why, what, what's it for? Well, in part, it's for goats, mountain goats. That's what it says. Rock badgers, they are given these little rock crevices to make out a home, it says in verse 18. High mountains and rock crevices. That sounds like pretty desolate land, doesn't it? We like mountains to look at or to go to the top of and look out of. But some big mountains are just desolate. Some deserts where rock badgers live are just desolate. But here it says that it has a purpose. So there's no such thing as God-forsaken land. He's there. It has purpose and he's there. That's why Job 39 says, Will the wild ox spend the night at your manger? Wherever the wild ox sleeps. It's God's manger. He made it for him. And he cares for his creation with purposeful cycles. Purposeful cycles. That's in verses 19 to 23, where it mixes the themes of God's provision, that is continuing to be talked about, but also his purpose in the cycles of seasons and days. So verse 19 says he's given us the moon and the sun for appointed times and and seasons. Then in verse 20, he says when the sun sets, that's night. And that's when all the beasts of the forest creep about. Have you ever been to Arkansas overnight? It's loud. I mean, if you're out in the wilderness, or whatever you call it there, if you're out there, if you're out in the sticks, it is loud. During the day, you can hardly hear anything. Occasional grasshopper, whatever, going by, and and that's it. But at night, things just start getting They creep about, and it is kind of creepy, ironically. (laughs) It's also when the young lions go on the hunt, verse 21. God's given them eyes to see at night, and that's when they sneak up on prey and take it. But when the sun rises, verse 22, the lions find shade. They lie down in their dens. How do they know to do that? Is it just because, well, they're, they're smart enough to know it's hot? Let's not work. Let's wait till it cools off and then we'll run. We seem to get more success at night. Oh, maybe, but I mean, God's just put it in them, hasn't he? I mean, your house cat doesn't have the same kind of discernment. It just is up in the middle of the night clawing at something, going crazy, and then, you know, sleeps all day. Why? Because God has made some animals to sleep at night and others to sleep in the day. He's made some to hibernate. He's made some to migrate. Others not, but how do they know? And even man is subject to God's purposeful cycles. Look at verse 23. 
Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now God designs these cycles for for man in all of his creation. We're subject to these cycles. You can't decide to just stay up nine days straight. We can also say that he's blessed us with these cycles, hasn't he? Do you hear this text saying, man goes out and he works until evening, and then it's quitting time? Some of us need to apply that, don't we? I mean, you know, on the phone all night, at the computer again, I just got to, you know, pound out 15 more emails before I go to bed. Do your work and rest in the Lord. Psalm 127 says, Woe to him who goes to bed late and rises up early, eating the bread of painful toil. Woe to him who cuts corners on sleep repeatedly so that he can work more and have more and be more in others' eyes. Man is subject to God's purposeful cycles. Own it. He's good in all this, isn't he? Then the psalm turns to, in verse 24 and following to give us a summary. It can be summarized like this. His work is manifold. It summarizes the verses that have come before and the specific things that God does and gives in his creation. And one way to summarize what's come before in verses 1 to 23 is simply to exclaim in verse 24, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. You might not be familiar with that word manifold. We don't use it too often in regular conversation. You probably think manifold has something to do with the carburetor. And that's obviously not what's being talked about here. It means many. God's works are many. They are varied. They are diverse. They are complex. Just think through all of the different branches of sciences and the different niches in each of those branches. I, 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 can't, even, I can't even possibly tell you about that. I'm not a, a science guy. I'm a, a history guy. So let me make a comparison there since I know uh, more about history than I, I do about science. If uh, a friend of mine said, I, I want to go study the Puritans at the University of Cambridge, uh, what supervisor should I talk to? I would say, uh, do you want to study the 1640s, 1650s, or the 1660s? Because those are three different guys. I'm not kidding. Like they say that all the time in academia, at least in my little niche of 17th century England, uh, people say all the time, oh, he's a 1660s guy. So, like, you know, you couldn't ask him a 1640s question. <laughs> Pastor Ron's dissertation was on the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Proverbs, primarily Proverbs 5 through 7. So if you have any questions about the Hebrew text being translated into Greek by 70 guys, it's a book called the Septuagint. You have specific questions about Proverbs 5 through 7. Ron's got some journal articles that he's written, and I'm sure they'll be very fascinating. As will the 1650s, if you ask me about that. It's so special, isn't it? And so it is in the sciences, I imagine. How many different kinds of scientists are there? I don't know. I didn't Google it. But I'm convinced that's the best use of the Internet these days, <laughs> typing in weird questions. Because someone's already asked it. 50 people have already answered it. They voted on which one's the best that's at the top. So Google it. How many sciences are there? <laughs> One smart guy devotes his life to research. 
neurosurgery or the microbiology of plankton and squid or something. And he only starts to understand it and move a little bit beyond his predecessors in his one little niche field. But God knows every science in every niche field to the infinite degree. And he doesn't just know it. He invented it. It's his. He made it. Every time they find a new discovery, God goes, yeah, I know. It's kindergarten. Job 37, Elihu asks Job, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? His creation is complex. And it's complex in its inner relationship and interdependency. You know, you think of an ecosystem. All these things dependent upon one another. You pull one out and the ecosystem can go kaput. But God keeps it all going. Psalm 104 is stressing this inner relationship of animals and plants and geology and weather and human beings. It's like a quilt of a gazillion patches. And each little patch is fascinating. A blade of grass under a microscope is fascinating. John Calvin said, a blade of grass shouts God's glory. But when you picture the whole, when we at times try to step back and think of the whole of his creation and the interrelationship of these things, we may not be very good at thinking through it. We may not be scientists, but we know enough to know It's all related. And it's all fascinating. Some examples, many of which you've probably heard before. If gravity were any stronger, toxic gases would build up and life would be impossible on the earth. If gravity were any less, yes, you could dunk. But more water vapor would rise, and hence the water cycle would get all kaput, and, and, and this thing would it, it'd go bad. I don't know what would happen, but it goes bad. If the earth were any closer to the sun, we'd melt. Any further away, we'd be under ice. If the earth's rotation were slower, the temperature between day and night would be too much, and life wouldn't be sustainable. So the earth rotates at a perfect 1,000 miles an hour. Approximately. A thousand miles an hour. Who would have thought that's the way to do it? Spin it at a thousand miles an hour. What? Why don't we spin off? Well, there's gravity. Just enough to keep us on. If we didn't have a moon, we'd be spinning four times faster. The moon is like the Earth's counterweight. Not to mention all the weird stuff it does with the ocean's tides. I don't even know. I just heard that before. (laughs) The more we know, the more we find out how little we've known, the more questions we have. His work is massive, too. When we looked at Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, we've talked about stars and the sky and galaxies and all that. And you might remember I said the Earth is a relatively small planet in a relatively small galaxy compared to the others. And yet, compared to you and me, the earth is huge. 
It is huge. I love those shots from a satellite. It shows the earth spinning. It just looks massive. It, it almost sounds like it has a grumble to it as it rolls. That's special effects, I know, but I imagine that it's there in real life. We're so small. Isn't it staggering that human beings have still not yet been down to the deepest part of the ocean? For some reason, that scares me. I don't know why. I think because it shows me humanity, people, we're small. For all of our cleverness of getting to the moon, we can't go to the bottom of the ocean. But God has. In Job 38, he said to Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? It's all mind-boggling. And it's mind-boggling diverse. Look at verse 24 again. Right in the middle it says, The earth is full of your creatures. Not long ago I took my son on a hike. Uh, We were hiking up on the peak. And so, of course, we're looking out and seeing God's grandeur and beauty, majesty there. And then we're also hiking down a trail and, you know, playing with bugs and trying to catch that lizard and that sort of thing. And So I read Psalm 104, our psalm today. And then we landed on this phrase, the earth is full of your creatures. So I said to Will, I said, hey, every time we remark about something, you know, some bug, some bird, some dead thing, ants everywhere, let's just say to ourselves out loud, the earth is full of his creatures. So we kept doing it all day. We probably said it 50 times. The earth is full of his creatures. And I got home, and I had a new perspective on our ant problem. <laughs> we had like a... It's, it's thankfully better now, but we had about a year and a half of ants. Uh, they buried themselves in the brick wall at the back of our house. And uh, no matter what we did, they just kept coming in. And so it was just infuriating, right? You just like, this is domain stuff, right? You keep coming in. This is my house. You don't, you don't pay rent here. Get out of here. You know? And I was really ticked about it for a, a whole year and a half, the whole time. And then I just kept thinking, once I got home, once I read Psalm 104 and practiced saying the earth is full of his creatures, chilled out a little bit. I still kill him, but, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> It's neat to say, the earth is full of his creatures. Flies. Yeah, they're annoying, but the earth is full of his creatures. How many times do you say, what good does that do? What are cockroaches for? I don't know the answer, but isn't it ironic how selfish a question that is? As if it's for you. As if it has to serve you and be useful to you, and you appreciate its beauty not cause you any trouble, and then it's good. Otherwise, God should have just figured out a better way to have an ecosystem without roaches. They're for him. I don't know. This week I googled how many species are there. It says in verse 25, the sea teems with creatures innumerable. I thought innumerable. Do we know the number? Well... We hear all the time that new species are being discovered and named, but I've never heard grand totals. I found this out. 1.3 million different species have been discovered and classified already. 15,000 new ones 
are discovered and classified each year. And that's all they can get to. The article I read said that most taxonomists, the guys who figure this stuff out and classify and name these things, have about 100 backed up each year that they can't get to. People find something, they bring it in, what's this? I don't know, put it on the pile and we'll get to it eventually. (laughs) And they don't get to it in that year. And there are people who study the probability and make calculated guesses on how many total species might still be out there. You probably think it's kind of small. I did. I thought maybe once we find Sasquatch in Loch Ness, then it's like done, okay. I mean, surely we found most of them by now. What is there, five, ten left or something? Haven't we been everywhere? Well, the latest research on this question estimates, of course it's a guess, of course it's, it's based on probabilities, but it's a calculated guess. The latest research on this suggests that there are still 6.4 million more species to be found, discovered, and classified. 1.3 million done. million to go. The sea teems with creatures innumerable. And it's still innumerable. Including one, verse 26, Leviathan. Verse 26 says, There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Ever wonder what Leviathan is? Some say it's a dinosaur. Some say it could be a whale. Some say it's some sort of unknown sea creature. But some also say that it could be a mythical creature that was in these times a symbol for trouble because it's powerful, it's big, it's scary, it's deadly, and it's mysterious. You rarely see it, if ever. And if that's what Leviathan is, then what Psalm 104 is saying here with sort of tongue-in-cheek is that Leviathan is God's Leviathan. Big old scary, chaotic, deadly, powerful, mysterious, rarely seen Leviathan is God's Leviathan, and he thinks he's cute. He watches him play. (laughs) He plays in the sea. Regardless of what Leviathan is, he's big, it's a massive ocean, and it's filled with massive and microscopic creatures, things big and small, from the smallest microorganisms to the blue whale, which is 100 feet long and weighs 200 tons. God cares for it all, and his care is essential. It's essential. They all look to you, verse 27, for food, and you give them their food. Even the lions, the king of the jungle, they seek their food from God, verse 21. And if he doesn't provide it, they're in trouble, verse 29 says. If he decides to take away their breath, they die. And yet, no worries, he keeps replenishing his earth. He raises up new offspring, almost like a new creation. He sends forth his spirit, and they are created He's constantly renewing the face of the ground, verse 30 says. And he rejoices in it. Verse 31 says, may the Lord rejoice in his works. And by extension, may we rejoice in his works. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says this, what the skeptic sees as meaningless swarms of life the psalmist teaches us to view as giving some inkling of the creator's wealth, 
and the range of precision of his thought. And because all is shaped by his wisdom, the creation is a unity, not only stirring us to wonder, but inviting us to explore it. His work is complex, diverse, innumerable, extravagant, satisfying. And look at verse 32. Lest we think that God's intimate and intricate care of his creation is all that can be said, we get just a touch of what we saw last week. He looks on the earth and it trembles. Earthquakes. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Volcanoes. His work is kind and good, beautiful, caring, providing, protecting. It's intimate and intricate and it's frightening. Don't forget. He's still the one who shakes mountains. He's still the one who uses the dark side of his creation for his glory and his mysterious purposes. Lastly, in your notes, the fifth thing is that our work here is to see and to sing, to meditate, to rejoice, and to praise Verses 33 and 34 say, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. That's just how he responds. I will sing praise to God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. He has seen God's creation. He's meditated on God's creation. His heart is stirred to sing of his creation, to rejoice in his creation, to praise him for it. Which means that we're all obligated to a proper response to this glorious and good God. But his work is not limited to care and provision. It includes judgment. That's what verse 35 tells us. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. And let the wicked be no more. This might look like an unfortunate, unfitting remark in an, at the end of an otherwise serene psalm. But it is a well-placed and much-needed reminder that despite that all that's been said about his goodness and his care, his protection, his provision, all is not well in the world. There is a thing called sin. There is a thing called judgment. There will be a judgment to come. God will make it right. And in part, he will make it right through judgment. We all know that that's good and that's right that he does it. We all want there to be a reckoning at the end, at least for some. I know not you, but you want Hitler to pay for his crimes or someone else in your life even. It tells us that all is not well in the world and that there is a judgment to come. The bad news is that we're all in on it. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And God will make it right. But thankfully, he will not just make it right with judgment. Jesus came and he lived righteously and he died completely, and he rose victoriously. 
And this really is God's greatest work of all. A new creation. This, of all his works, will praise him the most according to the picture of heaven's praise we see in the book of Revelation. His wisdom and his goodness, his provision, his care, his protection is shown to us supremely in the cross of Christ. Do you know that mercy? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you cast your sins upon him and received his righteousness in faith? Then there is even a greater reason to respond to this God with seeing and singing and meditating and rejoicing and praising. Christians are those who know that God is good and glorious in his creation, and God is even more good and more glorious in our salvation. So Christians say with the psalmist, with resolve, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation will be pleasing to him I will rejoice in the Lord. Preach to yourself. I will bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Praise him. And now, as those who are forgiven and have seen God's greater work in the cross, creation isn't useless. No. It's there and it's glorious. It's pointing us to the same God, and so we do look upon his creation. We fight to look upon his creation with curious minds and worshipful hearts. Oh, may we do a whole lot less of marveling at things in creation and it not being expressed to him, it not being enjoyed, and it not being praised back to him. Let every beauty, let every oddity, let every curiosity, let every weird Google question search be an arrow that points us upward to him in worship. So isn't part of the application of this passage this? Slow down. When's the last time you were bored? You see some things when you're bored. You start playing with weird things. Add margin to your life. Shut off the phone. Resolve what a professor at Wheaton years ago, Clyde Kilby, said. At least once every day, I resolve, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I'm on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. I shall not fall into the falsehood that this day or any day is merely another ambiguous, plotting 24 hours, but rather a unique event filled with worthy potentialities. I shall open my eyes and ears once every day. I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in my childhood and try, at least for a little while, to be a child of the pure, unclouded brow with dreaming eyes of wonder. Fight to look upon his creation 
with curious minds in worshipful hearts. Trust him as well. Trust him. Trust him for his provision. Trust him for his care. He gives drink to a, a thirsty, crazy, wild donkey. He'll take care of you tomorrow, right? Oh, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If he made heaven and earth, he sustains it. He can take care of you. Let the complexity and interrelationship of his creation remind you of his infinite wisdom. Don't doubt him. He does know more than you. I mean, can, can we say that's the understatement of the century or of all times? He knows more than you, but yet trials come and we wonder. We wonder if he sees. We wonder if he cares. We wonder if he's near. We, we wonder if he'll provide. Trust him and do what he does. He creates with beauty, with wisdom, with precision. He takes care of it. You, in your own way, create, care for, provide, protect, and rejoice in your work. You were made to do that as his image bearer. Bear his image out. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Do your work as unto the Lord and not unto men. Do what he does. And marvel at all his works, especially his greatest one. Marvel at the cross. Marvel at all of his revelation. And marvel especially at his clearest revelation. Go to the tree. Stare. Look at an ant and wonder. But don't neglect this. Go to his word. See what he has said. We want to see him that we might be more like him. That's his plan. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. And that's what we aim to do in this next week and month and year until Jesus returns.